One of the things that we usually say every Sunday is that we believe that the goal of redemption, the mission and vision of redemption is to make disciples who see that all of life is all for Jesus. And what that means is um, we, we believe that the church in itself, when we say the church, we mean Christians across the country, have been notoriously good for celebrating the efforts of men and women who leave the marketplace, who leave jobs at Intel or jobs at Arizona State University and take on um, positions in ministry. Meaning, I mean, we hear about people who leave uh, very lucrative jobs to go to mission fields, and the church celebrates that. But one of the things that we say to be holistic is we should also celebrate when someone who is in ministry is called into vocation um, within the marketplace or within um, in teaching or within it being, becoming an engineer or a lawyer. And so with that, we have an opportunity to celebrate. I have some good news. Some of you guys already know um, some exciting news, and um, hopefully you guys will be excited too. But before we do that, I want I want to invite Garth Bostic to come forward, and you guys all know Garth, so you guys please join your hands in welcoming the man. Okay, so um, real quick, before we even start this Q&A, uh, we're going to be talking about Daniel today, and one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did is he took the youngest, the brightest, the most attractive, the intelligent, and since you represent us in that, uh, I just want to say thank you, man. Thank you a lot. You're so. very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't get old, does it? <laughs> Well, Garth has some uh, announcements for us and uh, as a family, and I, I've asked him to come up and kind of share with us what is the next step for you, your wife, Becca, and your two daughters. This August, August 1st, uh, my family and I will be uprooting, moving to Los Angeles, where my wife will be teaching across the street from UCLA, and I will be attending UCLA at their law school. Yeah. That's what we do. Thank you. So if you guys didn't hear that, he's going to law school at UCLA. Uh, you always have to say that sometimes twice because um, no U of A jokes at all. Just some sin, you got to say that twice. But uh, could, you, could you let us know um, the process to, to going in this? So how do you decide from being the world's yeah. greatest, hottest worship leader um, <laughs> to, to leave and then go to law school? Well, that's a tough thing to walk away from. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you know, I, I really, my wife and I, we always kind of knew just in the back of our minds, like, you know, this wasn't the final stop for us was here at Praxis and now Redemption, that eventually I'd go back to school and wasn't quite sure what field, the area that'd be, that would be, but I started looking more seriously about a year and a half ago and really honed in and centered in on law school about a year ago. And so um, it's been in the works for a while, but I mean, honestly, uh, it's been difficult to leave our situation here, this church, um, Arizona. This is you know, where our entire life has been, and we love it. So this is us, kind of God, finally pushing us out and saying, hey, everything's lining up. Um, it's time. So that's what we're doing. Those are, those are honest words, Wugarth. Uh, I shared with the 10 o'clock service, essentially the, when I first came to Redemption and started working with him, he was very honest with me with saying that he had this idea or thought that him and his wife would be uh, entering into something. Now, I didn't know law school was it, and I, I just want to brag on him for a little bit because I know that he won't. Uh, Garth uh, did take the LSATs and did really well. In fact, he scored in the top 2% on his LSATs, and so that's pretty amazing. Um, in fact, he was only one point away from scoring in the top 1%, so almost even more amazing, right? 
And almost, so we're, we're <laughs> not quiet though. Just, just God's hand in this has been, has been, uh, and why don't you talk about that? Just God's hand in opening the doors for, for Becca, for yourself, for your children. Yeah. Well, like I said, um, my wife is a teacher now and she will be teaching, uh, across the street. There's one school across the street from UCLA and it's really just kind of like her dream school to teach at. So she's incredibly excited about that. And that was a huge indicator of like, you know, maybe UCLA is a school to go to <laughs> and, um, you know, our, our kids are finding uh, preschools there, and um, the financial aid was there, so it's really evident that, uh, that we're, we need to be there and that this is where God would have us be. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, it's definitely a bittersweet moment for us personally because, uh, and I say us, I mean us as a family, because if you guys have been around Garth for some time, you know the one thing that uh, he's really good at being a worship leader is taking attention and placing it on God and on his word. Um, most of you would go, I don't really know Garth, and that is a testament to, to his leadership. Uh, if you see the lyrics with the songs that he writes or the songs that he chooses to shape us as a people, they're theologically savvy and accurate, and um, you just, you won't find, uh, I'm not just saying that, that he's the best worship leader um, in the world, but definitely in Arizona. And so we had, we, 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 uh, it's, a, it's a bittersweet moment. We've been blessed by uh, God's ministry and, and God's service through you, but uh, with that, we do have someone that is going to to, I don't want to say replace Garth, but is going to come in um, and also be our next worship leader. And so would you guys uh, put your hands together for David Blakeman. The new best worship leader in yeah. Arizona. <laughs> the new hottest, youngest. Uh, so, so this Too is many the, like hot worship leader jokes <laughs> going around. I know, right I should now. stop saying that. Uh, you really should. Smart, theologically accurate guys. Uh, so uh, this is David, and some of you guys have seen David. David's been leading worship here uh, on and off for, for a while, and he'll start officially this next month and being our worship leader. Can you kind of just tell us um, your journey and, and being in ministry and life, kind of where you went to school, what you majored in? Just give us a little bit about David Blakeman. Yeah, sure thing. Um, I uh, graduated from ASU last year. Uh, I was an art student, um, so definitely a good financial decision there uh, for my future. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, so I graduated from ASU uh, last year. Um, I actually, throughout college, was serving at a church up in North Scottsdale called Highlands um, with our student ministries up there, um, doing all kinds of worship leading and discipleship type things up there. So um, I got uh, a lot of people that just sort of gave me the reins and let me practice doing things, um, Garth included, once I got here and just kind of uh, trusting me. So I'm very grateful for, for all of that, and um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. So. That's awesome. It was really it was really an easy find to find Blakeman, one, because we really wanted to look from within, and then someone who had a passion for discipleship uh, and that would embody who we are um, at Redemption. And uh, when me and Garth began talking, uh, his name came up quick, and uh, being able to meet with him and hear his, his concern for the gospel, his love for the gospel, and his love for people. I encourage you all, since he's going to be on full-time, wear him out. Find him on the, on the internet. Um, meet with him. Um, get his email address. Just get to know uh, David Blakeman. He He's a very, very talented, godly man, and uh, we're happy to have him um, and happy to have him part of the family. So would you guys join me now in uh, praying for the two of these uh, gentlemen before we enter into God's word? Father, we thank you so much for the excitement and the love of the gospel that, that you give us. That in itself is a gift, and Father, we thank you that we are a church, Lord, that, that wants to be a part of sending your people wherever you call them whether that's into the marketplace, whether that's in ministry, whether that's the Flagstaff or San Francisco or to UCLA. 
And so, God, we do pray for your blessing to be continually on Garth and on Becca and their family, that your spirit would guide them and lead them. Continue to open the doors for them, Father, and uh, give them the endurance and uh, uh, the strength that they will need, Lord, uh, over these next three years in law school. And, Father, we thank you so much for what you've done already and just the, um, the, the foundation that has been laid of what it means to do worship in Redemption Tempe. Um, that you've, you've worked through Garth and his band and the many men and women that have served with them. And so, Lord, we thank you that as the passing of the torch happens, that we pray for Blakeman, that you protect him, um, that you protect him from the enemy, that you protect him, Lord, from us, and that, Father, that you would be able to continue to establish um, Christ's formation in him. And, God, that he would be able to lead well with the gifts and the talents that you've given him. Father, we thank you for our body of believers, Father, that we have been able to uh, go through transitions, Father, and still yet what doesn't change is you. And so as we open up your word, we know that your word never changes and your word does not return void. And that's the constant in our life. And so we pray that we'd be able to cling to uh, Christ and his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys thank these guys? All right, so we are in part two in our series, Faithful, and we're picking up in the book of Daniel. And so if you have a Bible, would you guys meet me in Daniel chapter one? If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and keep it held extremely high. And one of the guys, one of the gals will be able to get you a copy of a Bible so you can have it in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please keep this. This is our gift to you so that you can have a copy of God's word. Again, that's Daniel chapter 1. It is uh, somewhat in the middle of your Bible, after Jeremiah, after Lamentations, after Ezekiel. Uh, that's where you have Daniel. Uh, Daniel is one of the prophets, and uh, we're going to look at the first six chapters of Daniel over the next six weeks. So if you're just joining us, when I say part two, is part one of our series, we looked at um, Joseph, the last 13 chapters of Genesis, and we titled the series Faithful. Uh, primarily because we've been looking at a faithful God and how God is faithful to his people and how his people are only faithful, how we are only faithful in response to God's character and to God's love and to God's work in our life. And so we looked at Joseph for four weeks, and now we're going to take the next six weeks and look at the book of Daniel. And so what I'll do today is uh, we'll look at chapter one, and I believe that Daniel will prove for us to be uh, a relevant book for us in a relevant time um, because Daniel speaks about um, four young men and how they live in a land, they live in a country, they live in a world that does not honor their God. And I believe that's fitting for us. And so if you guys would join with me and uh, begin in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar and to the house of God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Um, a few years ago, I heard a pastor teaching on this and was talking to him after the service. And um, we were talking about his experience in Africa. Um, and he was saying in Africa, it was really interesting because um, what we realize is the idioms that we use here just doesn't translate there. And so the story that he shared was when he was in Africa, there was a driver who drove them around everywhere they went. And he would hear the Americans say things like, um, what in the earth are you doing? Things like that, like, what in the earth are you doing? And he says, after a few days, this African began to repeat us. And so every, he was driving around, and someone would cut him off, and he'd go, what are you doing on this earth? And just over and over again, what are you doing on this earth? And I'm just sitting there like, this is hilarious, right? Like, can you imagine, like, just how degrading that question would be? Not, A, what are you, do what are you doing on this earth? <laughs> and... 
and I was thinking of that as I was putting this sermon together because I, I, as I think through them, that's, that's the question that people ask, just not in those words. I mean, people may not ask, what are you doing on this earth? But maybe you, you'll ask yourself the question or you'll ask God the question, what am I doing on this earth? Or what is my purpose? Or what is my plan? Um, what am I here for? What is the meaning of life? Th- those questions. And these are the same questions that the exiles, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they're asking while they're in Babylon. In fact, we know they're asking that question because when we read Psalm 137, which is an account of the psalmist after the exile, writes as he sits at the lake, and the question he asks in Psalm 137 verse 4 is, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're asking the question, why are we not in Jerusalem anymore, God's land, God's place, God's city, where the temple was, where we were able to worship God? Why are we in Babylon? And those, that question is answered by Daniel and his friends, and not just answered. They don't just give us the answer to why they're in Babylon, and I think gives us hints of why we're here, but what we are to do now that we are here. As believers of God, what are we to do in the city, in the places that God has placed us, in the schools, in the businesses, in the companies that God has placed us? And so three things that we see about the exile first of why they're there. The first reason why why they're there is we know that Nebuchadnezzar and and his team of people went in Jerusalem and they ransacked it. This is what is called biblically the exiles. And there was actually three waves that happened. The first wave happened in 605 BC where Nebuchadnezzar and the men from Babylon came and they took away the youngest, the brightest, um, the smartest, the wisest young individuals, which was Daniel and his friends. And about 10 years later, there was a second um, deportation where they took over people like Ezekiel. And then lastly, 10 years after that, they went and ransacked Jerusalem. They burned it down. And the people who went over at that time was the writer and the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, once the city is being burned down, I mean, this was a horrible reality when you read about it. There were kids being dashed against the rocks, people murdered, people burned. This was, this was war-torn refugee at its worst. And Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations as he sits and he's looking at Jerusalem, as he's weeping over Jerusalem. He's lamenting over what has happened to God's city. And yet in chapter 3, verse 23, he says um, what I believe is the foundation of why the exiles are able to live the way that they live. He writes in uh, the third chapter of Lamentation, how great is your faithfulness. Meaning in the midst of calamity and destruction, even though God's city, when the temple had been destroyed by this foreign country, um, Jeremiah is able to write, Lord, you're still faithful. You're still faithful in the midst of destruction. Who can I turn to but you, God? And, And that's the foundation of it. So the first reason why they're exiled is just Babylon came and got them. The second reason is because of their sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, um, as we finished up with Joseph, Joseph ended in, in, in Egypt. And after that, the people grew. Moses led him to the brink of the promised land. Joshua led him in, into the promised land. Within the promised land, Moses had given them words. In fact, Deuteronomy 28 said, if you obey God, if you follow God, blessings will come upon you. But while in the promised land, if you rebel against God, if you worship other gods, there will be curses. And one of the curses would be that a foreign nation would come and remove you. And over and over again, over the next thousand years, the prophets begin to speak and say, don't do that. If that happens, God's going to allow another nation to take us away. And so the second reason why they're exiled is because of their sin. And even though God was patient for a thousand years. But the third reason, the most important reason why they were there, is ultimately, as we saw in the life of Joseph, 
was God's sovereign hand in this and how he was guiding and moving history. Verse 2 says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. Meaning God's hand was in this. That, that it was God's sovereign hand that allowed or actively allowed or caused for the exiles now to be in Babylon. And now in Babylon we get to see what Nebuchadnezzar had in mind for Daniel and his friends, but what Daniel and his friends had in mind to be faithful to the Lord. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. So here's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Nebuchadnezzar is doing something that, um, for him, I'm, I'm not recommending it, is pretty wise. Meaning, what he did in that first wave is, I'm going to go take the youngest and the brightest, the ones of best appearance, which I have no idea why that was the reason, but he, he wanted to do that to take the youngest and brightest. Now, Daniel and his friends at this time were about 14, 15, 16 years old. But don't think about our 14, 15, 16-year-olds. Think about like our 38-year-olds, right? So that's, that's the type of guys that, that, that these men are. So they take him away. And, and the reason why this is important for twofold what Nebuchadnezzar was doing was I, was I was listening to a professor of mine talk about how to create a ghetto, essentially. And what he was saying is if you look into sociologically into areas that are blighted, one of the reasons is, is that there's no emerging leaders, Meaning you can go into communities and there's the wise, there's the older, there's the sage, and they're there for a minute, but if they have no one to pour into, if you remove, if you remove the bright, the smart, the thinking, emerging leaders out of that community, eventually it's going to turn on itself because the old sages will die off. Nebuchadnezzar knew, before I ransack Jerusalem, I'm going to take their brightest. And the second point of that is, not only am I going to take their brightest, I'm going to bring them to Babylon. Because his thought was, if I can bring these smart people into my place, now I can take their natural gifts and talents and resources, and we can shape them. Or you can use the language, brainwash them. We'll teach them our literature. Um, we'll give them the good food. We'll give them good drink. We'll take care of them. These are the type of people that would make our place better. The reason why I said that Daniel is, is going to be relevant for us, because I think there's just so many uh, correlations and parallels into the city that we live in and the state that we live in, and the country that we live in. You see, Daniel and his friends were being brought to a place that was a polytheistic culture, meaning there were many gods, meaning they were at worst antagonistic towards their faith, but at best indifferent. We've all had conversations with friends of ours, or maybe some of you here now are Christians, or excuse me, not Christians, and what you say to your friends is, I'm glad that works for you. Meaning, I'm okay with you being a Christian um, as long as you don't try to make me a Christian. So that, that was the place that they were in. What we'll see later is he even gives them new names. I believe this is relevant for us for many reasons. Another reason why I believe this is relevant for us is I was listening to uh, Ray Bakke, who's an urban missiologist who studies cities. And the question was asked for him, what is the most influential city culturally in the state of Arizona? And I thought, oh, please, please say Tempe, right? You know what he said? He said Tempe, right? And so that just, that just helped my bias. And so I raised my hand and go, why do you think that? And he goes, here's why. It's because of the university. He goes, because the university is there, it's constantly attracting ideas and thoughts and education. He goes, but here's the question. It won't be how influential they are. Will the church influence or not? 
Would they just be influential people, or would the church around the university actually engage with them? Which was a question that I had in my head. That that makes sense. When you think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, at some level, you have to think about ASU. Here's what I mean. Arizona State University, its biggest feeder state is Arizona. Next, California. Then Illinois. Then Colorado. Then Washington, and so forth. Many teenagers, 18-year-olds, are coming into our city every single year, thousands. And not just from our own country, but I think there's 167 countries that are represented at ASU. Um, side note is some of those countries that the men and women are coming from as international students are countries, some of us who are into missions, that we can't go. There's some countries that Christians are not allowed to go, and yet God, I believe, in his sovereignty is bringing them here. So when Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, he's helping us out by bringing the nations to our city. The question will be, will we be a people with the gospel that are able to bring the gospel to bear on the lives of these individuals? Will they just be shaped by the ideology that's been taught at the university, or will we bring the power of the gospel to them in word and demonstration? You, you, you see, this, this is, this, again, important because another reason for us is, is when it comes to our faith, um, especially if you've gone to a university, so many parents, when I was a student pastor in Gilbert, would be afraid of sending their kids to, um, to ASU on campus because they didn't want them to be influenced by the partying and um, by the dancing and by the drinking and, and all of those things, right? Um, and don't get me wrong, that happens there, I'm sure, I've heard. Um, <laughs> you know, I read the news. Um, But I think more dangerous than a party and drinking and drugs is actually the thought that's being, the the teaching there. When my wife transferred from a Jesuit university and she came to ASU, she said the first class she took was a rhetoric class, and before the teacher spoke a word, she walked into the board, she drew a lowercase t and a capital T, and she circled them both, and she crossed out the T, and she says in persuasive language, when you're trying to communicate something to someone, know this, the presupposition is there's no such thing as absolute truths. There's no such thing as an absolute truth. Well, that's a smack in the face of Christianity. That's a lot harder than saying no to drugs because that makes you think. What is this professor talking about? When we think about many of our young people that enter into the university and their minds are shifted, partly is because we never talk about these things in the church. You see, the enlightenment, what the enlightenment did for us is because of the scientific method, we can understand facts and we can understand value. So here's an example. One plus one equals two. If it goes through the scientific method, that means, and it, and it can prove, that's a fact. One plus one equals two is a fact. But if you put something like Jesus is Lord, the gospel is a truth of God that he's come to reconcile all people in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ, that doesn't go through the grid. So at best, it becomes value. And what Christians, because we have ceased to think, we start saying things like, okay, well, Christianity is true because I believe it. Or Christianity is true because Jesus lives in my heart. And therefore, we have a private faith. And the best thing we can say is we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Though when you look historically at believers of God and as Christians, it's always been their faith has never been private. It's always been public. It's always been a group of people who believe in God and they understand that the gospel grid goes into all areas of life. That's why we try to say all of life truly is all for Jesus. And Daniel and his friends they, get us, they give us a glimpse of what that looks like because they're in a land that is teaching them literature. And the literature that they were learning was, was magic and astrology and arts and many gods, and yet they were able to listen to it. Meaning somewhere before they are ripped away from their family, 
Someone had, must have taught them Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Jeremiah. Someone must have taught them to, for them to have the security to be rooted in the gospel that when they went to this three-year university and were being taught that they were able to come away with saying, we're not going to worship your God. We're still going to worship Yahweh. The prayer that we have for us as college people and as adults is as we are in the culture that we're in, that we're not so easily influenced by the culture, but we can stand up to the culture, understand the culture around us and say, we're not going to worship your God. We will worship Jesus Christ. Amen? But what we begin to see is that they begin to try to shape them. Look at verse 6. They give them new names. It says, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. All of their names, by the way, said something of God. God is gracious. Who is like God? And then the names they give them is gods that are in relation to the deities of their time. In verse 7, it says, And the chief of eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Meshach, he, Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abendigo. If you grew up where I grew up, we called it not Abendigo, but one bad Negro. <laughs> in fact... My pastor told me growing up, you always got to have at least one in the bunch, and if you do, you're all good. All right? Hey, by the way, don't go telling your friends that, oh, my pastor said it's okay, he's black. Don't do that, all right? Don't, <laughs> don't do it, don't do it. So, so we, we, have, we have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and here's what I know. We know from the story, but even before reading the story, we can know that they're going to live faithful. Because even though they're asking the question of, why are we here? Okay, we get why we're here. How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live in this, in this country? Are we, are we supposed to be here, but then create a little um, uh, sub-community, a community of people who only believe in God? Or are we supposed to engage the culture? What are we to do? And I think they know the answer to that already. And here's why. Because I think they read the most important letter that they could have read, and one of the most important letters that you and I could read. Hold your spot here and turn a little bit to the left to Jeremiah chapter 29. This, this, as you turn there, Jeremiah chapter 29, um, in Jeremiah 28, he confronts a prophet, a false prophet, who had told the exiles, hey, be in Babylon, don't talk to them, don't read their literature, don't listen to their music, don't go to their schools, don't do anything, and God's going to come get you in two years. In fact, move away out of the city, move into a place where you only hang out with people who are believers of God. That, that's it. Just do that, and God's going to come get you in two years. And then Jeremiah comes and says, you're absolutely wrong. That's not what God says. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, he tells the exiles, one, that he sent them and what they're supposed to do. 29, verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles to whom I have sent into Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it is in its welfare that you will find your welfare. God says, here's what I want you to do. First of all, I sent you there. Meaning God had a plan for Babylon. He goes, I want you to plant gardens. Meaning get a job. You're going to be here for a while. Get married. Give your kids into marriage. Let them have kids. They're going to be there for 70 years, three to four generations. Stay there. Don't move away. Don't create um, a, a Christian ghetto. Don't just make your own music and your own schools. Be, be around people who don't believe what I believe. And then he says this, and this would have been really hard for the exiles to hear this. He says, 
um, seek the welfare of the city, or if you have a different translation, it says seek the peace. Both welfare and peace are um, weak translations because the Hebrew word for that is shalom. And we always, our Bibles always translate it peace because it's the best word that we have. But when we think of peace, we think of inner peace or the cease of conflict between two parties. And yet when the Bible says shalom, it talks about universal flourishing, meaning the way that things ought to be. Thinking of more than just a vertical relationship with the Lord about things around here. What he's saying is pray for the city on its behalf, meaning pray that my ways would happen. Meaning care about the public school system. Care about politics. Um, Care about the sewage system. Care about your neighbor. Care about people around you. These are not just social issues. He's not saying do these things and these things will make you right. He's saying if you are my people and you respond to my faithfulness, pray for the city, seek its shalom. And then he says this, it's in seeking its shalom that you will find yours. It's in seeking its peace that you will have your peace. Hear me now, he's not saying just have inner peace within the culture. He's saying care for people, even those who are not a part of your group. Meaning to be a Christian means to love God and love neighbor. Now, I know that some of you are saying the role of the church, you're talking a social gospel, you're talking about social things. Our role is to preach the gospel. You're right. Our role is to make disciples. You're absolutely right, but here's the deal. There's no way you can be a disciple of Jesus Christ and love God and love your neighbor and not care for your neighbor. There's no way you can say that you're a disciple of Jesus and say, my neighbor's thirsty and not give them water. There's a sense here what we see in response to the gospel, in response to God's word, God is telling the exiles, and I believe he's telling us as a church, to do the same in the places that he has us. And you say, well, that's explicit for them. It's Babylon. How do I know I'm supposed to be in Mesa? How do I know I'm supposed to be in Tempe or wherever you live? Well, Acts chapter 17 lets us know when Paul is speaking, he says that God has a lot of the times and the places and even the seasons of this very year, meaning June 2012, for you to be in a particular place that you may see God and know God. So therefore, we could be confident that if we're in a place right now, it's where God wants us. And so the exiles are able to respond to this and say, this is how we're supposed to live. We're not going to retreat like Hananiah said, which what many Christians do. Many of us want to retreat and be around people who think like us, who talk like us, who dress like us, who act like us, because, and it's usually in a good way, we we don't want to become like the people who our ancestors was. And so it had been wise for them, they thought, for them to retreat. But God says, no, engage. And that's exactly what they do. Three things that we see from Daniel when it comes to cultural engagement, when it comes to being the church in response to the faithfulness of God, is one, is be faithful in the little things. Two, what we'll see is be faithful in biblical community. And the last one, be faithful in your vocation. First, verse eight, faithful with the little things. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So here's what happened. Daniel says, you know what? I'll take your name. Sure, call me Belshazzar. I never liked Daniel anyway, right? And then he says, okay, I'll take your literature. I'll take your teaching. But I'm not going to eat your food and your wine, which sounds like, really? Food and wine? Are you kidding me, Daniel? Can you imagine how good the king's food was? But Daniel says no. He says, I'm not going to defile myself. In fact, he goes to the eunuch and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you just to give us vegetables and water. We won't even eat meat. And some of you vegetarians right now are like, yes, I knew the Bible said that, right? Is the Bible teaching that we shouldn't meat? God forbid, no. I mean, that, that's, that, 
be hurting, right? But there's a, there, there's a sense where he says, we're just going to eat vegetables. Now, some people have many thoughts of why Daniel didn't want to eat the food. And, and what I think Daniel was doing right now, what every Christian should do, is he puts his stick in the ground. And he puts his stick in the ground with something that seems small. You see, some people say, well, he's not eating the food because it would have been offered to idols. Well, not only would the meat have been offered to the idols, but so would the vegetables. And someone say he's not eating the food because it wouldn't have been kosher. Well, he's still not drinking the wine. And some people say he didn't drink the wine because believers in God are not supposed to drink. And, and, I, and I get it. I think there's wisdom in not drinking. However, just, just hear me on this. Jesus says, when you remember me, eat and drink wine. Just a thought, all right? So I don't, think that's what, I don't think that's what Daniel's doing. I think Daniel is saying, hey, I know myself. And I know that I can be persuaded by my name change, persuaded by the fact that, you know, I get to hang out with the king, and I know that I'm trying to be shaped by this culture. I think he has an understanding of his sin in the same way that we should have an understanding of our sin. And he goes, I have to choose certain things in my life where I'm going to say this far and no further. And the way that he decides here is food. Meaning, he probably was raised in a good family. He was probably raised to know Yahweh and to know God. He read the letter of Jeremiah. And so what he's saying is, you might have taken me away from Jerusalem, but you're not taking me away from God. I mean, maybe a better way that you guys can understand this is, you could take the boy out the hood, but you can't take the hood out the homeboy. All right? (laughs) Daniel Daniel says, I'm not, with with, with food. And he takes his friends with him. And so here's the thing, little things. It's little He says, I'm not going to eat. Some of us, I don't know what the little things are for you that you need to do, but here's what I know. It is easy for us to uh, become people who adapt to our culture. It is easy for many Christians, especially within this church, to look at people who retreat, to look at people who only hang out with Christians and go, they're not being missional, they're not being engaging, and yet you yourself um, find yourself being someone who just adapts, and that's not it either. Here's what I mean by being being people who adapt. The Bible says in Romans, do not be conformed with this world, but many of us, are, we are. One, one pastor said culture is like the rain. No matter how much you put on, you're still going to get wet. And some of us look that way. That, that the only time that you really encounter God or you even try to be consistent with God is if you come to a service on Sunday. Meaning that everyone else around you, when they see their life, there's no different in your life than any of their unbelieving friends or friends that don't believe in God. Meaning there's absolutely no witness um, of you being salt and light because you just adapted to the, to the culture around you. Meaning you don't, you don't uh, make decisions in light of the gospel. You don't make relational decisions in, in light of the gospel. The people who you marry, the people who you date, um, the, how you spend your money, all of those things, it makes no sense. And Daniel says, I know that's my proclivity. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose something to remind me of who I belong to. And every single one of us have to choose those things that are personal to us that remind us. It, Daniel, it, what he's doing with food, I'm not trying to say maybe there's food you need to eat or not eat, but maybe there's something that you know when I engage these things, other Christians can do them, but for some reason right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit myself from this. I mean, I'm going to take a season away from this. Some of you guys do it in dating. Um, for me personally, when I became a Christian, it was drinking. I felt like that one thing that I needed to prove to myself in some ways, or just, just it, was, it was alcohol, it was, it was booze, it was, it was drink, it was liquor, right? And so I, had to, I, just, I just stopped drinking because I knew every time I did that, I, didn't, I wasn't acting like the person who God had called me to be. And so I abstained from it. And some of you need to find what is that thing that you had. Um, and, and I did it for a long time. I, I didn't count. It was a year and a half. Um, but but it, was, it was something for me to do. You, you, you know how you're just easily influenced? Even sometimes the most um, godly people, 
one of the things that's uh, really convicting for me is, is many times when I hang out with my friends um, that are not Christian, um, my wife and I hang out and we'll have a great time and we'll be telling stories about back in the day and, 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 and then I drive away and I'll look at my wife and, and ultimately say, I, I, didn't, I didn't honor God. Why would I tell those stories? Those are the stories God saved me from. In fact, those are many of the stories that Jesus had to die on the cross for. Why would I celebrate that as if that was a good thing? How am I being a witness? And that's not to beat myself up. It's just saying, this is how easy it is. It is so easy to drift. And so every single one of us, we have proclivities that way. And so we have to find, what are the things that, that, that I need to do? Because if we're faithful with the little things, we'll be faithful in all things. You see, Daniel started with food. This was before the lion's den. This is before they'll be thrown in the fiery furnace, before they can do, a quote-unquote, the big things of God. So one of you say, I want to be the godliest man in the world, and yet you don't even read your Bible. Some of you, some of you people say, um, um, what I want to do is I want to reach the culture for Jesus, and yet you've never talked to anybody about Jesus. Listen, start somewhere and grow. You can't leapfrog. Start somewhere and grow. I was talking to someone the other day. Five minutes in prayer, five minutes in your word. That's it. Pray for five minutes, read your Bible for five minutes. And maybe the next month, go to seven minutes. I don't know what it is for you. Just start somewhere and grow. Because if we are faithful in the little things, whatever the little things are, then we can trust and know that in response to God, that we'll be faithful in all things. Amen? The second thing that we see in Daniel and his friends after they eat the vegetables is that Daniel didn't just do this alone, but Daniel brought his friends with him. Um, verse 11, it says, And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let, our apparent, let the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see, saying, Just trust us in this. But he says us, and he says we, and he says our. Um, before we can reach ASU, before we can reach Tempe, before we can even, um, even leave these doors, we have to have a commitment to the gospel, and because of the gospel, vertically, we have to have a commitment here horizontally. Meaning, there's gotta be a commitment to the people to the left and right of you. There has to be a commitment that you commit yourself in biblical community. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how the conversation went with Daniel and his friends. I, Daniel led it, and he went to um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, hey, um, they're offering us good food, you know, slow-cooked, I know it, and good wine, good drink. And, uh, and I love that they have drink in there, not drink, because that's the way I say it anyway. Uh, so there, so there, there, there's good drink, and, and I don't know how the conversation went, but somehow they agreed to, to be uh, vegetarians. And I don't, you got to love somebody a lot to, to, to do that. And, and yet, I, that's what they decided to do. Because it wasn't so much the action as it was the faith that, that built out in that action. And I don't think they could have been able to do it if they didn't have each other to do it with them. Now, here, here's what we say. We say this every week. Be in a redemption community. Be faithful in a redemption community. And a redemption community is not the answer. Hear me, Jesus is the answer. But we do believe that people grow best in small group environments. And community in itself, people usually come for three ways. They, they, three reasons. They'll come because they just need friends. Some people will come because they're looking for a good Bible study. And some people will come because they're looking to do something, looking to serve somewhere. And you're not going to get all those things in one night. What, what I am saying is if you would just be committed to a group of people, it would be great. And don't look for an affinity group. So often we go, oh, I don't like that group. Um, they, 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 they like dogs, and I don't like dogs. And oh, I don't like that group. They, you know, they like humans, and I don't like humans. And it's just so weird what people would say that they like or what they don't like, or they're old and they're young. Listen, 
It's the people of God. In fact, one of the greatest witnessing pieces uh, is the fact that there's different people who are with one another. That the church in itself is uniquely different than anything else because the gospel is. Because the gospel at its greatest common denominator is the fact that we center around Jesus. Not our preferences, not our race, not our background, um, not how much we make or how little we make, that we center around Jesus. And yet the hardest thing for the church to do is to be people who can be around people who are not like them. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel draws, but it's the hardest thing. I was talking to a guy who's somewhat of a mentor of mine and leads a a multicultural church, and I'm always asking the question, how do you get rich white guys and poor black guys and rich black guys and poor, how do you get these guys together? He goes, Ricardo, it's really easy to get them to sit in rows. It's very hard to get them to sit in circles. Meaning it's really easy to get them to look at me, but it's hard for me to get them to look at each other, and that's what we're working on. And, and, and let me just hear you, if I believe, I totally believe that God has a vision for us as a church, not just Redemption Y, but Redemption Tempe, and I do believe that we are called to reach the people surrounding this campus, but we will never be people that are missional, and if you don't know what missional is, missional is being holy in action, and we'll never be that people because we can't do it alone. We, we can't just be individuals who say, okay, if I just come here a sermon, listen, sermon's not going to do it, it'll be a part of it. Um, just reading your Bible and praying, it'd be a part of it. But it's in the context of one another that God continues to bless us. This has historically been true. All you do is read the book of Acts and what you see, they ate together, they prayed together, they listened to God's word together, and they, and they hung out with each other, and they had everything in common. They blessed one another. And, and, and so Shadrach, Meshach, Daniel, Abednego, all of these guys, what you see over and over again, we're going to see as the weeks they, um, progress, they come back to one another. They pray with one another. There's a sense of community there. Um, there's an old African proverb, and it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. I can't say this enough. It is very hard to do community. It is. But it's harder to do Christianity apart from it. Amen? And so I'm asking that we continue to engage with one another at that level. Well, here's what happens with Daniel and his boys, and and you know the story. Um, Somehow they ate the vegetables and got fat. It's the weirdest thing in the world. Verse 15, it says, At the end of ten days, um, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the other youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they drank and gave them vegetables. Uh, the, The last thing that we see here is not only being faithful in little things, be faithful in biblical community, but be faithful in your vocation. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams, meaning God had given them gifts. He had given them talents, and they were able to use them. Um, he had given them wisdom. He had given them literature. Daniel, he gave visions and the ability to interpret dreams, which we'll talk about later and next week. But these are just gifts that God gave them, spiritual gifts as well as talent, um, talent and natural gifts that, that God uses for his people. And what did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They used these gifts. They used them to care for Nebuchadnezzar, first to honor God and to care for the people around him. This keeps coming up, this whole idea of being faithful at your vocation. I, <laughs> the most of your time is spent at work. Therefore, usually that's your primary place of mission. And it's not so much that you need to go there holding your Bible and evangelize the people, but you do need to honor God in your work. Um, We can't have a a dualistic faith that says, I'm a Christian on Sundays, and then Monday through Saturday, trust me, if you're in business with me, I will wrong you just like the next guy, because this is the way this world works. It's a dog-eat-dog world. We have a Darwinistic worldview in the marketplace, but yet we call ourselves Christians. You see, that doesn't add up. 
And in fact, what we see biblically, and even here, is that Nebuchadnezzar begins to praise them in the same way that we saw Pharaoh praise Joseph. I'm not saying that we need to work so that we can get praises. We need to work in order to praise God. I mean, there's a certain way that we work. There's a certain way that, that God has given us gifts and talents to use. And hear me, God will continue to bless his church with gifts, talents, um, as long as we need them and as long as he wants to carry forth his purpose. Some of you are in vocations right now for a reason. It may be to evangelize and show the gospel to somebody and that they may come to know Jesus. Most, primarily, it's to do whatever you're called to do. If you're a teacher, teach. If you work at Intel, make something really cool. Um, if, if, wherever you're, if you work in a bank, think about what the banking industry would look like when the kingdom of God comes. If you work in finance, think about what that would look like. If you're in politics, God bless you. Do something, all right? And uh, there's a, where, wherever you're at, but do it. And do it faithfully unto the Lord. Will it be easy? Absolutely not. In fact, we're going to see later, these guys were thrown in a lion's den and a fiery furnace, all right? So it's not that easy, all right? So there's, there's a sense where work is hard, and yet we are the work to the glory of God. Um, people around us um, should see Christians and say, we're glad they're in our industry. We're glad they're in our company. We're glad they're in our office. I'm glad I share a cubicle with them because they care about this company more than anybody else. They care about it as if they own it. They work as if their life depended upon it. And our life doesn't depend upon it at all. But Jesus gave his life so that we would be his people and be witnesses and be salt and light. And that in itself is not just with the context of believers, but it's in the context of all of life. That, that, that's why we have that value as of a church, that our role is not just to raise up leaders that will become pastors and worship leaders, but to continue to equip you all to be the people of God in the greatest mission field ever, and that's away from the church. And so you have an opportunity to do that and do it to the praise and glory of our Lord. Amen. When it, when it comes to um, what we should do in culture, that language is always mentioned. And should, we, should the church be about evangelism? Should the church be about the marketplace? The church should first and foremost always be about Jesus. In fact, I'm going to close with this. Is, uh, there was a really good book that came out a couple years ago called To Change the World. And James Davison Hunter, who is a, psych- what is he, a sociologist at University of Virginia, a Christian man who wrote about this idea of uh, changing the world. And even the title of the book is kind of misleading because his whole premise is Christians are not supposed to change the world. But what we're supposed to do is be like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Meaning, we're supposed to look at the life of Jesus. Jesus is the one who ultimately embodied what Jeremiah said. He's the one who moved into a place in a foreign land where everyone hated him. He's the one who died for those who wouldn't believe in him. He's the one who died for those who were, who were throwing things at him. He's the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what I do. And Jesus is the one who says that I can only see my Father. I can only do what I see my Father doing. And now our response is just to follow Jesus. Our response is simple. It's to be faithful to the, the nature and the person and work of Jesus. And so what James Davison Hunter writes here, um, he says, Christians need to abandon the talk about redeeming culture or advancing kingdom or changing the world. Such talk carries too much weight and implying the conquest and domination. If there is a possibility for human flourishing in the world, it does not begin when we win the cultural wars, but when God's word of love becomes flesh in us, reaching every sphere of social life, When faithful presence existed in the church history, it manifested itself in creation of hospitals and the flourishing of art, the best scholarship and the most profound and world-changing kind of service and care. Again, not only for the household of faith, but for everyone. Faithful presence isn't new. It's just something we need to recover. It is our prayer as a church 
as we look at the book of Daniel, as we engage in community with one another, as we make the little decisions that God has called us to do, be faithful and very small, that we don't think about winning Tempe. We don't think about winning the world. Jesus Christ came to save the world, and we follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I, we come to you, Lord, as a people, and we bow down before you, and we thank you that your kingdom has come in Jesus, and yet we realize and acknowledge that it's not yet fully. It's not yet fully in our minds because our thoughts are constantly being shaped by the things around us. It's not yet fully in our action because our behavior does not always look like the values and the characteristics of the king. Father, we know that it has come because you've given us your spirit. You've given us a desire to seek you and to know you. You've given us a desire to see the flourishing of the church and the flourishing of the city around us. Father, never let us lose um, sight of the gospel in order to be servants to this world. But Father, help us to be servants to Jesus, Lord, and in response to that, to bless those around us. Father, I pray for those who are in the, the academic uh, culture that are constantly being bombarded, Lord, with thoughts that are the complete opposite of what you teach. I pray for those here, Lord, who are engaging into uh, conversations and relationships and thoughts and um, ideas, Lord, that are completely the antithesis of your gospel. Lord, would you humble us and call us to repentance by your spirit. I pray as a body that we would come along one another. Lord, starting with something very small and getting to know the names of the people around us, praying for each other, serving with one another, that this world may see that Jesus lives because he lives through his people. Father, your word says that they will know you by our love. And so, Father, as we see you and seek to resemble you and embody your truth, Father, we pray that we would um, show forth the love of God the way that we love one another. God, we need your help. We ask for your spirit and that you would remind us of the truth that you give us. Amen.